Thank you for joining us at Essential Ethics, your gateway to ethical discussion and education about complex bioethical issues that arise when caring for sick children. Essential Ethics is made possible by funds raised through the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. We want you to be inspired by the stories of courage of our patients and parents and the staff who care for sick children and be inspired by the clear thinking of the team at the Children's Bioethics Centre when things get tricky. Today's podcast, we're going to consider one of the trickiest things that doctors have to do ration resources. We're not talking about an expensive drug, but about a heart. Heart transplants for very sick children. And we have here at Royal Children's Hospital more children needing a heart transplant than we have donor hearts available. So one of the focuses of our discussion today will be about how we manage that when we have more children needing a heart than there are hearts. But there's another layer to this and that is that technology is advanced so that we can now use artificial hearts to keep children and even infants alive until a heart comes available. We call this a bridge to transplant. But there are complications of this technology. The artificial heart doesn't last forever, and there are risks of serious bleeding, infection, and stroke while the patients are on the artificial heart and waiting for a possible transplant. So the ethical question becomes, do we put the next child with irreversible heart failure on an artificial heart and run those risks when we already have a number of children waiting for a heart and so few donors? The front line of this dilemma is Dr Jacob Matthew, cardiologist here at the Royal Children's Hospital. Jacob, welcome to Essential Ethics. Thanks for having me, John. We also have Professor Lynn Gillam, the Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Service and who's also at the University of Melbourne to help us think through some of the ethical issues. Lynn, welcome back to Essential Ethics. Thanks, John. Jacob, it might help the listeners just to start by thinking about a typical young child uh, that you deal with who might be in this situation where they're looking at a heart transplant or an uh, artificial heart. Is there a typical child, a two- or three-year-old or a one-year-old, and their brief journey? Sure. So we treat children of all ages here at RCH, but um, the the epidemiology of cardiomyopathy is such that there's a lot of young infants and younger children who come to us. And the most common group of kids, I suppose, that head down this line are kids with intrinsic heart muscle disease or cardiomyopathy. So a typical patient might be a child who's a couple of years old who has come to us with um, a slow progression of symptoms but often something fairly short-term that's tipped them over um, and is found to have a dilated cardiomyopathy. And so that means that their, their left heart is large and somewhat floppy and doesn't squeeze normally and has a difficult job of sustaining blood flow to meet the needs of the body. And so a child like that might present through an emergency department, our own or externally, 
and find themselves um, with a lot of interventions, a little bit of uncertainty at the outset as to what's going on. That picture can look like a whole lot of other things that happen to children. But eventually somebody makes a diagnosis with a cardiac test like an echo and the child finds themselves in our intensive care units, often with some degree of breathing supports and multiple medications given through drips to help the heart to squeeze a bit better. And that's usually the point at which I would be coming involved, trying to work out where to go to next with this child. And then, Jacob, what you know might be the questions from your colleagues who've made a diagnosis of a cardiomyopathy, the heart's failed, a situation we're talking about today is not going to recover, obviously given it some time to recover perhaps in the intensive care. And then we're at that point where we think, well, here's a two-year-old, for example, the heart's not going to recover. Mm-hmm. What is the team asking you? Well, often... Um Sometimes it's at the early stages clarification of the diagnosis. That blanket label of cardiomyopathy can reflect a lot of different um, conditions that can look the same as far as the heart goes. And they may be asking for guidance about the early stages of management. A few of these children with medical therapy and time may stabilise out to the point that they're able to de-escalate the type of care they're receiving and gradually end up back on the cardiology ward and eventually hopefully out of hospital on some medical therapy that may help their heart to stay healthy in the long term. But for a number of the kids that come to us in that sort of very acute way, that it becomes obvious pretty early on that that's not the journey they will follow, that their hearts are pretty sick and not likely to recover in the time frames that we're talking about. And so the question then becomes, what can we offer those children Um, to give them a better and longer life than they might otherwise have with their heart disease. So what are are those alternatives? So uh, with the situation now, we've maximised intensive care, we've maximised therapy, this is not somebody who's going to get better and go home. And it looks to me like this could be a choice between withdrawing the the life-sustaining treatment the Mm -hmm. child's likely to be on or proceeding towards a heart transplant. Is that what we're talking about? We're ultimately talking about a heart transplant. Um, For kids that don't stabilise on medical therapy, there really isn't anything else that we can offer that that makes the heart magically better. So we're ultimately talking about keeping somebody alive and in good shape to receive the benefit of a heart transplant as a a definitive therapy. And you can transplant kids at two or younger still, can you? What's the limits? Yeah, we don't really have a limit. In practice, we've transplanted kids as small as three kilos. Um, So neonates and upwards, um, we we can't offer transplant for a number of reasons to premature kids and very growth-restricted kids. But in real terms, most of the kids that present to us... um, with a cardiomyopathy in childhood at any size can really be considered for transplantation. And is there a particular criteria that you'd be thinking about to say that somebody could have, or I don't know if it's routine care, should have a heart transplant or just not have one? Mm-hmm. So transplant is a funny sort of therapy. It's not a perfect therapy. It offers a good length of life, and for our smallest kids, the average survival after a transplant is north of 20 years. 
Um, and it offers a good quality of life for those kids for the years that they live with their transplants. But it's not a normal life. First of all, the time frame I'm talking about is not the normal life expectancy of any child. And um, whilst retransplant at the end of that is possible, it's a fairly infrequent activity for a whole bunch of reasons we can go into later. So it's not a perfect therapy in terms of longevity. Most of the kids we transplant, if they're in good shape at the time of transplant, are in good shape afterwards. So following their recovery, they usually attend school normally. They participate in normal playground and sporting physical activity. Their lives are a bit different because they have to take medications indefinitely two or three times a day to keep their hearts in good shape and to prevent rejection. And they require a lot of monitoring, which particularly in the first year after a transplant is quite busy with lots of tests and clinic visits. In the longer term, it gets less busy. Most of our kids see us every few months. So we're really um, offering a longer length of life for the types of kids we're talking about than they might otherwise have, but not a normal length of life, and a life that's of pretty good quality, but not normal in, in the way that most people think of their children's lives. And Jacob, so in that situation, do, do people actually choose not to have a heart transplant and say, well, I know technically you can do it, you're offering me 20 years but maybe that's not enough and the, the, the sort of life you might have with medicalisation and tests is too much. Do, do people choose not to have it? Yeah, in this era, it's probably a minority of people. I'd say less than 10% of the people that we meet. But some families do look at that whole package and realise that it's not the right choice for them or for their child. And our view on this as a transplant team has always been that transplants... It's a bit different to a child coming in acutely who's otherwise well with a meningitis for whom I think withholding antibiotics would be the wrong thing to do. Um, we always view transplant as well within the zone, to borrow Lynn's language of parental discretion. It's not a perfect package, it's not a perfect solution, it comes with a, some warts, and that journey can be difficult for some of our kids. And I'd never impose that on a family. We say our jo job is trying to educate them about what we have to offer and what that looks like going forward, not necessarily to compel people to take that option. I mean, Jacob, it sounds like you've already done some work with Lynn and the ethics team and been <laughs> thinking through these uh, issues, but I might just defer to Lynn on, on that point, Lynn, because, you know, we've, we've hypothesised, for example, that we might have a two-year-old heart failure not going to recover and the option of 20 years of life if they have a donor. So before we think about the competition for donor hearts, Lynn, do you agree with Jacob that it's all right for families to say that's not good enough and we'll stop now? I think, John, it depends on what the phrase that's not good enough means. But if what they're saying is looking at our child and our circumstances and how we envisage our child's life, we can see that that would be a really difficult life. Uh, and we just don't think we would do, be doing the right thing by our child to send them down that pathway. That does seem to me to be within the zone of parental discretion. However, and I think Jacob's indicated this, most parents don't see it that way. So I think you suggested, Jacob, that maybe 10% might choose against transplant, so 90% choose in favour of it. And that also seems very reasonable when the alternative is that their child dies quite quickly without a transplant. So they're choosing for 
20 years of life of relatively good quality. It's not, as Jacob says, not normal. And in fact, one of the ethical uh, issues around heart transplant is that then the number of children waiting for a transplant because their parents have made that choice appropriately for them. Uh, and that raises some of the ethical issues, I think, that we're wanting to talk about today. So, Jacob, what what happens next then? So, family having thought about it and decided to go ahead, mm-hmm. uh, there's a number of children already on a list. Uh, how do you decide that this one should go on and be maybe the fifth or the sixth or the seventh Mm-hmm. waiting and potentially compromise the children already on the list? Well, the first step, John, is um, is an assessment. An assessment is a process that involves a lot of conversations between us as clinicians and the family. They'd meet a number of members of our team, our social workers, our um, palliative care team, various subspecialists if there are other problems going on. And... That really is a series of discussions so we can learn more about the family and their wishes and they can learn more about what we have to offer. And there's a range of medical tests that are required as well to understand what other, what other problems that child may have that may impact on how they do after a transplant and specifically how easy it will be to find a match for them in terms of their blood group and their size and their immune setup. And the the whole point of that, the main point of that, I think, is communication so that everyone can be clear about what we have to offer and what we don't. But a part of that is also to ensure, and you've alluded to the limitation in terms of donor organ availability, I guess a part of our job there is to try and figure out, um, that, well, try to make sure that the patients that we're offering a transplant to are likely to do well and receive the full benefit of a transplant, that we're not inappropriately, in my, in my view, I guess, transplanting people that um, may have strong reasons to believe that they don't do well in the few years after a transplant. Lynn, do you think that just sounds like a self-rationale from Jacob and the <laughs> and the cardiology service and the people deciding, or is actually more to that in terms of thinking about who might benefit the most when, of course, to each individual parent, mm-hmm. and we imagine the child, if they're able to be engaged in this conversation, would think, no, it's mine. I need that heart. Uh, so I think, John, that brings us to what the real difficulty about ethical questions of resource allocation, which is we would be looking at a group of patients, all of whom could benefit to some extent from a heart transplant. For one child giving his or her particular uh, situation, they might only survive two or three years with a transplant. But the alternative is that they survive maybe two or three weeks. So it's always or almost always going to look better for that individual child. Uh, but the other side is there are simply not enough hearts to provide a transplant to every child who might benefit to some extent. And the decision that Jacob's alluding to is the decision of uh, choosing from amongst all the children who could benefit to some extent, which ones would benefit enough to put them on the waiting list for that rare uh, heart to come along. And there are very few hearts, I understand, Jacob, that are actually made available for donation for small children mm. each year. Could you give us an idea of the numbers? It'll it'll vary a little bit by size group, but you know, one one area that's become quite prominent for us is smaller infants. 
And um, I recently looked back at the number of offers we have that uh, might suit a child of 10 kilos with a dilated cardiomyopathy. What's remarkable is that on average we get about four offers a year, which is not a huge amount. Mm. And um, obviously that's an average, so it can vary greatly from year to year. What's remarkable is that that really hasn't changed since the very early 1990s, despite the population growth and um, and awareness of donation and increase in donation rates in, in other groups, particularly in adults. And in many ways, Jacob, we wouldn't want it to change, would we? Because the availability of a donor heart means that a child has died. And reality is, I think, Lynn, that that's a good news story. We're losing fewer kids to drownings and to... Um, and to SIDS and some of the things that were a bit more prominent in the early 90s, mm. which is why those numbers have stabilised out. So four hearts on average per year become available, and you could have at any one time maybe 10 or 20 children waiting <coughs> for that heart? Our wait list in recent years um, has fluctuated, of course, but the, it's not uncommon to have a dozen kids, not all in that size group, perhaps mm. half to two-thirds in that size group. Uh, waiting for a heart at any given time. Mm. So this, I think, is part of the conundrum, John. There are lots of children who could potentially benefit a bit, but it seems wrong to put every child on the waiting list. So if we had 100 children waiting for the four hearts that might become available each year, that seems like a wrong thing to do. And then our problem is how do we choose and what's a small enough number to realistically wait when we know that for those who are not waiting, the possibility of them surviving long-term is very low, if I've understood. For most kids, yeah. Sometimes we're pleasantly surprised by kids who recover while they're or improve while they're waiting. But for most kids, um, the the outlook is better with a transplant if that's available. So this is a problem of distributive justice in ethical terms. And the way it's typically thought about in a healthcare setting is, first of all, to think about uh, allocating the resource that we're talking about, the the heart, uh, to those who are most able to benefit from it or able to benefit the most from it. And that's why we've been talking about how long the child might live and the sort of quality of life they might have. The other thing that Jacob's brought in, though, is that um, not every heart is suitable for every child. And so another thing to think about is just the probability that this particular child will actually... uh, receive a heart that's that's suitable, that a suitable heart will come along. So, Jacob, what are some of the things that would make a heart not suitable mm-hmm. for a particular child? Well, for most people, they need to be matched to the blood group of the donor heart, um, otherwise it won't work. Now, that's not true for our very smallest infants, but that's generally true. The heart has to fit, and so the decision-making around that is a bit complex, and it includes some factors like the diagnosis of the recipient. So if they've got a big baggy heart, they might be able to replace that with a larger heart. Um, And so the diagnosis matters and their size matters. So size fit um, is an important factor. And there are other conditions. Some people really do, because of their um, higher risk of heart dysfunction after a transplant, we really do need a donor heart from fairly close by that's in good condition at the time of a transplant. Whereas for other kids with fewer comorbidities, you might be a bit more lenient about how long the heart can be out of a body. And then the final thing is a good immune match between the recipient and the donor. So the reality is that not every heart that's offered to us is suitable for everyone on our wait list. Mm. 
it's hard to put that in, in numerical terms, but most of the time when we receive an offer, we're really, really thinking about two or three people at a time that might benefit. Mm. So, Jacob, does that mean that some children, just through bad luck in a way, um, are unusual in some way and, and waiting for a heart might take longer for them because... Absolutely. So if you have a child whose heart, whose native heart is not very large, who can't take a blood group mismatch heart like um, like our youngest recipients can, and who, because of previous blood product exposures and surgeries, has an immune system that's primed to not accept 90% of the hearts that are offered, and we can quantify that to some degree, um, then that child, will, you would expect, would wait longer than a child who has none of those factors, who, who in whom we can be more liberal about the size match, you know, who can take, take an ABO-incompatible heart, who doesn't have any immune barriers, and who's in a state that they can accept a longer-distance heart. So when a heart comes along, it might be suitable for a number of children, but mm-hmm. one of those children might be only able to take that heart and not any other heart that comes for the next few mm-hmm. years. So would you then prioritise, how would you how would you manage that if you've got a child who's the unlucky one, so to speak, for whom a really particular type of heart is needed, yeah. and other children who've been waiting quite some time, but they can take a range of different hearts? Yes. How do you manage that? It's complex, Lynn. Um, the first thing is that um, we regard each of the people that are that have been through the assessment process and have been listed as being mostly about the same in terms of the benefit that they can expect from the heart. There mm. will be some difference depending on what's going on with them clinically. But sorry, just to interrupt you there for a moment, Jacob, and to clarify, if a child has a, a very low chance of surviving a number of years with a heart transplant, you would not even put them on the waiting list? Um, yes. So, yep. So if we go back to the assessment, it's not so common that we do this, actually. We we do actually accept a large majority of the kids that are referred to us. Um, but sometimes if based on the clinical um, scenario and their other comorbid medical problems um, and their immune risk and sometimes social factors... All of those may tell us that this child is on average going to, for a number of reasons, it's really one thing, is less likely to do well after a transplant. And on on those rare occasions, we may say that actually it's not appropriate to list this child mm. for a transplant because they, or we would expect, would receive less benefit than most. So then the children you've got on the waiting list are already chosen, in a sense, to have approximately an equally good chance in of doing well with the transplant. In general, yes, yeah. Lynn. There's some subtle cha- differences between kids, but generally yeah. we, we're talking about a group of kids that we think will do well after a okay. transplant. So if we're back to this child in the unlucky mm. situation of there only being um, a rare heart that's suitable for them and other children who could take a number of different hearts... Yes. There are many, I guess, competing priorities that go into how you prioritise a wet list... But one of the most important ones is that everyone has a go, a fair chance of getting a heart in time. And so the children for whom the requirements for a donor are more restrictive and or who are sicker and less able to wait for the heart to come along are prioritised above children who, who are better able to wait and have more options available to them. Mm. So Lynn and, and Jacob, I think we've got to a nice point there where... 
we're selecting people onto the list who are going to benefit from the technology, if you like, of a transplant. We're aiming to give the heart and in, in some respects respect the donor by giving it to the person who's going to get the longest use from it, the most benefit. And then we're also in the mix prioritising the person for whom it's most difficult to get a heart when that or if that heart comes up. So I think that explains quite nicely some of the key thoughts about listing for transplant and trying to manage the resource. But as I alluded to at the beginning, I think there's another step that we're using now that just complicates things further. And, and I know that some of those children with heart failure can manage and just wait, uh, but some really can't. And so an artificial heart or a left ventricular assist device is used to give them some more time. But it's quite a substantial therapy and I think brings in some ethical dilemmas of its own. So, Jacob, would you like to just explain what a left ventricular assist device is and what perhaps some of the complications are? Mm. So a left ventricular assist device is one of a number of different types of pump. It's very simple in mechanical terms. It takes blood out of the heart that's not working well and pumps it to the body to assist or completely replace some of the function of the heart. And there are different types, but if I focus on the smaller kids, we're talking about a device that's placed surgically um, that comes with some large tubes that are about a centimetre in size that drain the blood from the heart to a pump that's outside the body and that, again, through large tubes, deliver that blood to the body through the aorta. And... The pump itself is a very simple mechanical device, but any time you put somebody's blood in contact with artificial material, there's a risk of forming clots. And with this external pump, that also comes with a risk of forming infections and the like. So it's an involved surgical procedure. It's this very large and conspicuous pump, and the pump itself is attached to a pretty large driver unit that's the size of a small washing machine. It has a battery uh, capacity that allows it to last for maybe half an hour without mains power. So the practical consequence of that is that these children um, essentially need to be in patience until they're able to come off the pump in some way. And their parents are able to take trips with them around the hospital, but on a fairly short leash if you think about that battery life. And the children themselves are physically tethered to that, um, to that driver unit. And overall, once they get through the implant, most of our children do recover pretty well. They're in pretty good physical condition. Many of our children have learned to walk on this device or to, to, to meet sort of major motor and other developmental milestones. So, Jacob, the tubes that connect them to the machine are long enough for them to be able to move around? For, for a couple of metres. We're not talking about a, a long range there. Yeah. And, um, and so somebody needs to roll this unit behind them if they're going for a longer walk. And I've sort of talked about some of the time constraints involved there. And so this device overall, when we, when we look at our standard risk dilated cardiomyopathy patients, um, you can expect that about 8, eight in 10 or 85%, something in that range, will get to the endpoint of a transplant or a much smaller number to the endpoint where they recover such that the device can be re removed. 
And um, over a time frame of many months, we're talking typically four to six months on the device. And we've had children who've been in hospital for more than 18 months to two years. Um, so that's the rate of success with this device. But it comes with some burdens. It's not infrequently the case that kids need to have a whole lot of blood tests done because their blood thinning medications are out of range. They may develop infections on the device that need to be treated. And despite all of the attention that's given to these kids in managing their blood thinning, there remains a risk of clot. And so the real Achilles heel of these devices is that they um, can form clot which um, moves to other parts of the body, and particularly to the brain. So historically, about one in four of our kids on these devices could expect to have a stroke at some point during their time on the device. In recent years, those numbers have improved a bit. It's probably somewhere in the 10 to 15% range. But there's fundamentally a risk that's inherent to this device. And Jacob, it certainly sounds like hard yards, but with 85% potentially getting a heart, then perhaps it's worth it. What if you have a big stroke and then you're disabled because mm -hmm. of that stroke? Does that change your candidacy? Now you might not benefit as much uh, from the transplant as if you hadn't had that stroke? Yeah, that's an interesting question, John. So the answer is it depends. We try to be um, open about this with our families and talk about those those possibilities because they are frequent enough to to warrant mentioning when kids are looking at these devices. And we talk about what it might look like after a stroke, and it, it, it can vary. So sometimes strokes are devastating clinical events that are immediately life-threatening and the child will die as a result of the strokes. Sometimes they're very minor clinical events with few neurological consequences and the kids may recover quite quickly from, and often they're in between. And for most kids, after an appropriate interval, because it's not always safe to do a transplant in the immediate aftermath of a stroke, we would consider relisting. And Part of that package would be that the child may experience some impairment going forward that they hadn't um, that hadn't been part of the whole package as they were placed on a VAD. So there's lots of really interesting ethical considerations in there, isn't isn't there, Jacob? That that once the child is on VAD, mm -hmm. so a decision has been made that they're likely to benefit enough that um, they're a candidate for a heart transplant. We're waiting for a heart transplant they have a stroke, it makes their medical condition worse. Perhaps their life expectancy with the heart transplant is now less than it was, mm. and the quality of life that they might have with the heart transplant is less than it was. But you would still go ahead and transplant them. So these things come in shades of grey, Lynn. Yeah. And so one of, um, one of the things I do always say to families as we're embarking on this journey is that things can happen on the wait list, with or without a VAD, mind you, that... Um, that add more complexity to the picture and may need for us to revisit the decision about candidacy. So it's not as simple as stroke, you're on the list or off the list. Mm. It really depends on how much that's likely to, um, to impact on the outlook after a transplant. And it's always shades of grey and very individualised decision-making. Mm. But we do try to um, word up our families that candidacy is decided at the point at which they're listed but can change based on what happens clinically mm. after that and stroke is one of those scenarios mm. that plays into that. Mm. Jacob, um, 
I've got just a couple of questions, so we'll have to wrap up soon. Jacob, I know that in if you're big enough and you're an adult, you can have an implantable device and that can be your therapy to mm-hmm. keep you going, mm. even if you don't get a transplant. Is the sort of device you're describing for a small infant, is is that a destination for children? Or would you only use it if you're as sure as possible they're going to get a transplant? In our hands and in almost every paediatric centre, actually, we're talking about a uh, worldwide, we're talking about um, these devices being used as a bridge to transplant or to recovery where that seems likely based on the condition of the child. It's actually more nuanced than that. So bridge to uh, destination therapy, um, even in the adult world in Australia, is not an efficiently supported activity. And the reasons around that are probably more to do with distributive justice than and resource utilisation than benefit to the individual. But if you look at the real-world outcomes of adults who are placed on a destination therapy device um, who aren't transplant candidates because they have other medical complications and comorbidities, they don't do terrifically well. We're not talking, for most people, about 10 years of good life on a device. The average is probably closer to a few years and marked by a lot of complications like bleeding events and the like. So even in the adult world where you have the option of discharging people on these devices, certainly at a government um, resourcing level, it's not a supported activity. For us, we, um, we've had the view that these devices come with a much higher rate of adverse events than the adult devices do and come with the additional burden of having a child in hospital and on a very short leash for a long period of time. And obviously there's room for lots of debate around this, but the view has been that this isn't appropriate for destination therapy, um, these, these sort of devices that we have for smaller kids. So, Jacob, I have one final question then, now that's off the table, is the families. Children are in a ward environment if they're on one of these devices and I imagine some of the children waiting for a transplant who aren't on a device are also in a similar ward. So the parents will get to know each other and they're all hoping it's them when the heart comes up and sometimes they just sort of know by the grapevine. Mm. So how do parents feel when it's not their child who's selected and they're left to stay on the ward and stay on the assist device? It's it's remarkable. So um, when the VAD program started, there may only be one or two people on a VAD at any given time. In the current era, we're talking about 10 to 12 kids on a VAD at any given time. And it's inevitable that these families network and form very close uh, networks and bonds together. And I suppose the answer to your question would really depend on the group of parents. Recently, I've been amazed at how supportive our parents have been of each other. And um, ostensibly, at least, they look genuinely happy when um, when somebody else on the heart, on the ward has had a heart transplant. I suspect that could vary with the group of people that you have. At a practical level, this is getting away from the ethics a little bit, but at a practical level, we've long had the view as a transplant team that we won't discuss the specifics of wait lists and prioritisation with our families. That... Um, People will, that it's not an entirely transparent process because we don't want to invite those sort of comparisons and that sort of um, that sort of competition um, amongst people who are living together for months and months on end in the ward. 
So we talk in general terms about the sorts of factors that affect weightless prioritisation, as we've discussed earlier. And we um, we try to let our families know that this is a this is a process that we try to be fair about, but we don't share the details of near-miss offers and why somebody got a heart and somebody else didn't. I mean, I think, Jacob, if you've got families to a position where they can actually be pleased for another family, that's a really very wonderful thing, and you're obviously doing uh, incredible work, not just to keep these little kids alive and offer them the prospect of a, of a transplant, but to manage the families with that. Uh, Lynn would like to say something. Mm. John, I think your question really points to the potential emotional toll of waiting. So if we think about um, the downsides of being on one of these devices and waiting, we've talked about some of the physical effects for the child, but the emotional effects of waiting and waiting and waiting and perhaps seeing other families, other children get heart transplants is very difficult to measure, but it seems like a really important part of the experience and would be potentially one of the reasons why we would not want to have 100 children Mm. waiting on VAD, um, knowing that if the number of uh, donor hearts is not going to increase, that they might wait not months but years uh, they, their life might be physically limited in many ways. It's risky, but it also has that um, really strong, potentially emotional toll as well. It's, it's a really, I think, difficult conundrum because the option for them, the only alternative for them, if they can't survive without the VAD, is that they won't survive. Mm. Well, we're not here at Essential Ethics because it's easy, <laughs> Lynn. Uh, thank you very much, Jacob, for explaining to us about heart transplants for little children and about left ventricular assist devices. And Lynn, thank you too for helping us think through some of the issues and distribution of what is a limited resource. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more at the Royal Children's Hospital website. Just go to rch.org.au forward slash podcasts or find us on your podcast app. If you would like to find out more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, visit us at rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. And there you'll find lots of resources about children's bioethics. We'd love to hear what you thought about this podcast, so please leave us a review. Essential Ethics, be inspired. <laughs>